Welcome to Automotive Insiders, the podcast series presented by OESA, the Original Equipment Suppliers Association. You'll hear from automotive industry experts on the critical issues that are impacting the mobility landscape. Get actionable insights on how to thrive in Automotive 2.0. Now, here's your Automotive Insiders host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome to Automotive Insiders, presented by OESA, the Original Equipment Suppliers Association. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Happy to be here with one of our frequent and regular guests. It's Bill Newman at SAP, and we're going to cover a lot of territory in terms of 2.0 of what we spoke about. Was it last year? Bill Newman, welcome. How are you? I'm great, Bonnie, and uh, yeah, it's been quite a year, hasn't it? It has been, and the question is, is it that year that was, or are we still in that year, even though we're in a different calendar? I'm pointing in all different directions here on the video. Bill, you know what I like to say, if perhaps... Well, you've been on so many shows with me over the years. You've been on the Future of Cars with Game Changers presented by SAP and the Future of Mobility and Manufacturing, and you're a regular here on Automotive Insiders. But just in case, Bill, I don't know, I even hesitate to say this with you of all people, just in case there might be four people in the world, 4.2 people who don't remember who you are. You have a very, very interesting background. Bill, would you take us through a little bit about how you got into automotive and what you did before this? Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, sure. So uh, again, hello to uh, all of the Automotive Insider listeners and thank you to OESA. Uh, My name's Bill Newman. I'm 35 years in uh, manufacturing, planes, trains, automobiles. I got started originally as an airplane guy uh, working for the B-2 stealth bomber program back in the day uh, when we couldn't say what we made. Uh, The joke was we had to say we made a paycheck every day and and run away in case we got any inquiries because we were in the uh, stealth program. Over the years, I did work at uh, Boeing. Um, Love and business brought me back to Michigan. I've I've worked with a number of system integrator and tier one consulting companies, as well as um, was a leadership team member with uh, the uh, Volkswagen IT division for for, uh, a while and uh, have worked with most of the major automotive OEMs over the years. in my role at SAP, I'm responsible for go-to-market in, in North America for automotive as a, what we call one of our industry executive advisors. So it's, it's great to be back with you, Bonnie. And again, I'm really excited for today's conversation. Thank you, Bill. We have a lot to cover, as I said. Let's look into the lens of one year later from when we started talking about the pandemic, the lockdowns, the shutdowns, the automotive industry literally coming to a screeching halt, put the brakes on manufacturing, put the brakes on factories. And let's talk about something as a new term to me, not to you, I know, Bill, I know you've written about this on LinkedIn, automotive resilience. How does this how does this impact what our supplier audience wants to know? Bill, tell me about automotive resilience, please. Well, to your point earlier, Bonnie, I think we have to go back into the time machine, the Wayback mm-hmm. Machine, it almost feels like. I like to tell people that January and February of 2020 really felt like months 13 and 14 of 2019. It, <laughs> it's just a completely different shift of reference. You know, back then, we were talking about auto, operational resilience in, in the perspective of that we did not feel that the financial systems that were governing automotive companies, particularly suppliers, were robust enough for all the complex manufacturing, multi-site locations, 
um, all of the financial roll-ups, transfer pricing that needed to be made. Uh, and then we got walloped with the pandemic. And uh, this time last year on this show, even, you can go back into the archives, we were literally date stamping how quickly things were changing on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis. Um, as listeners know, we, we actually went through, I think it was an eight to 10 week shutdown. Um, things started to open back up again, but still the structural issues of not having adequate financial systems governing the automotive supply chain remained. They were just exacerbated. And like so many other things that we found the pandemic did is it accelerated the attention of current and existing situations and trends that were already in motion uh, at an extraordinary pace. Um, so when you actually look back to the winners and the losers through the pandemic, obviously mm-hmm. some some of our colleagues in the high tech and uh, media, for example, did extraordinarily well as, as customer buying behavior shifted. Mm-hmm. Inside automotive, you know, we, we basically had to start building cars again. And we were able to do that with great speed and uh, notwithstanding some some heroic efforts by the supply chain and, and um, you know, the, the members, the OESA members. So again, hearty congratulations to everybody through a tough year. Uh, but it wasn't a V recovery, right? Mm-hmm. It did take a little bit of a time to work its way out. And, and there are some ancillary effects that we're still dealing with today. Bill, talk to me about liquidity. Talk to me about where, where was the money coming from, especially from the supplier's point of view. I know there were issues with contracts and delivery and cash flow and not just the stopping and the starting and disruptions to supply chain, but money. It's the bottom line. Businesses need to live. They need to pay people. They need to keep everything going. So what was the situation with liquidity? And and perhaps you can reflect on that in terms of our term for this part of our conversation, automotive resilience. Was there liquidity resilience? Yeah. uh, And I think the answer is it depends, unfortunately. So when when we first, again, going back into the way back, we didn't really figure out right away or, or could concept right away how people were going to work differently, right? And there was this real concern that we would have to have all of these layoffs and, you know, basically reduce the, the work. And, and, in, and in some cases, there were, no doubt about it. But inside mm-hmm. the automotive industry, many companies, either they were deemed essential or they were uh, working in areas of the, of the country that hadn't gone into lockdown or for the full eight to 10 weeks, And in those cases, they were able to shift thanks to technology, what we're using today with Zoom and Teams and other other platforms. And we're able to figure out ways to stay on the payroll or at least maintain their employment and get work done. Um, So that was really extraordinarily important because when you speak to liquidity, payroll is obviously outside of materiel is is your biggest uh, component um, as a supplier. Now, as as listeners of this show know, suppliers generally take a while to get that big cash flow wheel going, and it can take 12 to 18 months before you actually have that flywheel of cash coming in and making payments out of a company, Mm -hmm. um, particularly those at the lower tier supplier space. And when we talk about the liquidity impacts, and we we have actually just did a really fantastic program on this specific topic uh, late last year. Uh, we really delve into the whole point of being able to harvest not only your cash reserves, but also your your working lines of credit. And when everybody mm-hmm. ran, 
um, in some ways a bit like 09, but in many ways very different. When they ran to tap those reserves, um, there were some people who got to the well late or they were just not large enough to have those type of working uh, reserves available. And so we've begun to see a number of vehicle makers uh, work with their critical suppliers to extend payment terms. Um, in some cases, um, reverse DPO arrangements where they're actually paying ahead of schedule, mm-hmm. um, being able to provide um, consigned material in mm-hmm. terms of a directed mm-hmm. buy rather than having a supplier actually use their own money to buy for material to build parts. Um, so it's gotten creative and we're not through that yet. So there is some of that that's still happening. And we are we are already seeing a number of large uh, company tie-ups, uh, ownership changes. And again, to just underscore a point we've made on this and other shows, these are not bad companies. These are companies mm-hmm. just simply are running out of cash because you can't just turn off the spigot and expect that large cash flywheel of that usually takes in normal times, 12 to 18 months to build up to just reappear. Um, so we're still working through that. And I expect that we'll work through that through the middle part of 2021. Thank you, Bill. I always learn so much from you. It's always always interesting talking to you. You're you're one of my go-to people in terms of automotive. Bill, let's talk about a, a word you you used a lot in the past year: wobbling. The supply chain wobbles, and you told me before we started today that supply chain wobbles have abated. However, you made a point to me that shortages still exist. Let's talk about that, the demand side supply planning, key shortages of specific components. You can get into that. And then we'll, we'll wrap up this part of our conversation with new policies around industrialization, a regional supply capacity in North America. And that's a mouthful. So Bill, yeah. talk to me. Tell, tell me your perspective, please. Yeah, well, there's a lot going on and a big shout out to all the supply supply chain planners out there who have uh, probably aged 10 years in the last <laughs> 10 months. It's uh, really been something for them. I mean, you know, you're basically running replanning almost on a daily hourly basis. So going back, you know, we, we had, you know, suppliers mm-hmm. stopping, starting, you know, if you recall, I mean, again, this was just a year ago. You know, we had we had extraordinary uh, down supply of parts coming out of China as they went through lockdown, and then it kind of rolled through the world, uh, impacting Europe and the Americas soon thereafter. And as we began to kind of work our way back out of the shutdown, things began to do some fits and starts. And this is what I refer to affectionately as the wobble, where mm-hmm. you know you, you you've got a long term plan, and rather than it being a, a traditional whipsaw of oversupply and balance, you're actually getting these little fragmentation and chatters going on in your, your supply demand plan. And, and so we were able to kind of get to a steady state on that. With one big exception, mm-hmm. we were all misplaced in terms of where these containers were that are apparently now in tremendous shortage throughout the world. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. If you've got parts coming over from from Vietnam or China or Taiwan, and they're coming over on a boat, you can't airlift that container off the boat and expedite it to the port of Los Angeles. When it's on a boat, it's on a boat. And so there are some pretty critical decisions that have to be made way ahead of time uh, based on whether or not you're going to put something on an airplane and expedite it, or if you're going to put it on a boat and assuming that you can find a container now to put it on a boat. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a global container shortage right now because 
all of these vessels are have been over the last two, three, four months lining up in major ports in at least North America. So Seattle, uh, Los Angeles, Jacksonville, others look like giant maritime parking lots is the expression I use in my LinkedIn article. And so unfortunately, the, the, the components that are on these boats and that are in short supply range tremendously. Obviously, everyone's heard about the semiconductor uh, shortage. It's impacting a number of, of modules that are going into vehicles. So many vehicles right now are being made uh, without the uh, auto start fuel module that goes into them for EPA guidelines here in North America. Um, many of these vehicles now, based on some of the announcements over the past couple of weeks, are going to be made, put in the field, and then retrofitted or you know, perhaps even soft warrantied, uh, you know, in terms of uh, fixes when customers bring their vehicles back into to the shop. So they're, they're built, they're fine. They just don't have certain features that allow the vehicles to comply with um, broad pool EPA guidelines in terms of emissions, uh, in terms of the whole fleet, not mm-hmm. the vehicle, the fleet. And then, of course, we've got these very interesting things like sunroofs and noise deadening mm-hmm. foam. And of course, um, now the you know we'll talk a little bit about policy. The, the the current administration is reviewing, much like the PP uh, protective uh, equipment, uh, personal protective mm-hmm. equipment PPE that we were looking at last year. They're actually reviewing what does it mean to the industrial base to have enough chips, enough battery uh, platforms, enough sunroofs. I don't know if we're actually going to get there, right, uh, on that particular piece. But they're doing some policy reviews based on protecting the industrial base and the regionalization Mm -hmm. of the market to make sure that these pieces are available. Um, It's been publicly stated that GM and its partner LG are looking at another gigafactory here in North America Mm -hmm. specific to address North America regional demand for their products. So watch very carefully vehicle makers, what they're going to do to verticalize some of these supply, um, short supplies. Um, Look very carefully what uh, the, the the current uh, administration in the United States particularly is going to be looking at in terms of their industrial policy. And I think you're going to find that there's going to be some pretty significant investments in retooling of the, at least the regional supply chain in the coming months and years. Thank you, Bill. Very, very interesting. Let's look at one more topic and a word that some people love and some people hate, but we all are living with it now, change, right? Change. And let's look at what is changing in terms of what suppliers build and how they build it. How much change is going to happen in, oh, can we look ahead for the rest of 21, Bill? Do we dare to go out to the, to the end of 2021 <laughs> or, or are, we, are we in for more surprises? I don't know. Uh, you know, the old French saying, one of my favorites, plus I change, plus I la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Uh, so are, is change going to be the same for us? Is it always going to be changing? What do you see, Bill? Très bien, mon ami. I, 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 I <laughs> agree completely. Um, so here's the thing: we've we've we have a new administration. We've had some serious, some significant policy decisions, both at the um, market level and at the um, brand level. So let's first kind of unpack all that. And and the big change, uh, no surprise, is going to be around electrification, particularly in North America. So arguably. 
because of past policies, uh, North America, and, and consumer demand, frankly, because Bonnie, you and I have talked about this. A lot of us mm-hmm. like driving gas-powered vehicles, right? We, yep. We like the feel. We like we like how they handle, and we like being actually driving. Exactly. Vroom, vroom, yes. Vroom, vroom. <laughs> so, you know, what does that mean when, you know, California says they're going to stop selling new personally owned uh, vehicles uh, in 2035 that are gas-powered? Okay. That's that's a pretty bold statement. And mm-hmm. then followed that up with GM's announcement that they're going to go to an all-electric new car sales fleet by 2035 as well. They're going to start with Cadillac. They called their dealership late last year and basically... It was a uh, a buy-in or leave type of arrangement where the Cadillac dealerships had to put up roughly about two hundred thousand dollars. And you know, for those of you not familiar, for those of the listeners not familiar with how the dealership structures work for light passenger vehicles in North America, it's largely family-owned businesses. So mm-hmm. that's a lot of money. Um, and and many of the dealerships took a buyout up to a half a million dollars to basically sell back their franchise license to a GM. So, you know, new new bays, new uh, new tooling, new charging stations, because you build and you service an electric vehicle much different than you do in an, an internal combustion engine vehicle, an ICE vehicle. Fewer mechanized parts, more solid state, less uh, forged parts. You know, the impact to suppliers is going to be significant. And understand that we're really only talking about maybe another 3 to 5% of total fleet year over year, but that translates to millions of vehicles, even if you're talking about, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 million vehicles sold um, annually. And I'm just talking about the light passenger vehicle segment. Mm -hmm. We haven't even talked about the heavy commercial vehicle space, which is largely looking at um, hydrogen fuel cell. And, and, you know, then it's going to be a question of distribution uh, of fuel. So, what we're going to make is going to change and how we make it is changing because of just the architecture of the vehicle itself. Now we haven't even talked about autonomous connected, Mm -hmm. but all of that adds when you start to get to level five connectivity, whether you're building an electric vehicle or whether you're building a gas powered vehicle or a hybrid, even um, that adds additional technology to, to the vehicle. So it can, you know, talk to other vehicles, talk to smart mm-hmm. buildings, register their parking spot for a last mile delivery, et cetera. Um, so it's it's really, an, it's not the big tipping point. You know, good news for people like Bonnie and I here, we're, we're going to be able to drive our gas-powered vehicles for a very long time. They're, they're not going away. Um, the fleet will still be here, uh, but the new entries are changing, and that's where the shift is happening. And keep an eye on Mexico. Right. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see some high technology BEV operations from the brands moving into Mexico because that's where a lot of the the demand uh, and supply capacity is uh, for building. Um, so just keep an eye on that. Things are really going to start to change and, and materialize quickly over the next, uh, say, 12 to 18 months. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Bill. You're a compendium of great knowledge. Any summary you'd like to leave leave our listeners and if they see the video, our viewers with? Is there optimism? We've talked about change, talked about policies, regulations. We've talked about liquidity. We've talked about supply chains getting back into, into production, more things happening and coming. We talked about new markets, new sources of markets. So, Bill, do you have any 
really strong, optimistic words for our, our audience? Well, I think, I think with change comes opportunity, but, mm-hmm. but there's also a caveat. So I'll, I'll speak directly to our, to our tier two and tier three listeners out there. Now is really the time to have a conversation with your adult children as to what, if they want to take over your family business and, and whether or not they're inspired um, mm-hmm. to, to re-architect a number of your product designs so that they can fit in this new electrified world, because that's what's going to need to happen. I mean, one day we'll just wake up and well, we aren't going to be building as many forged parts in our 20X plan moving forward. And, and I think it's really important, you know, as a bit of consultative advice here for our listeners to really understand that that shift is underway and it's not going to happen overnight. But don't be the boiling frog that wakes up one day and, you know, after we've turned the heat up incrementally and, well, now we have frog soup. Uh, we really, we really want to make sure that, you know, our, our suppliers are doing what they need to do to plan ahead. Uh, to echo my, my opening remarks, to have the right financial structures in place to mm-hmm. be able to adequately manage not only the planning, but the execution of your business and to work very, very closely in collaboration with your suppliers and your customers to be able to take advantage of these new opportunities post-pandemic. Thank you, Bill. And coincidentally, I just had a conversation with Kerr Russell attorney Ken Lombardo recently here on Automotive Insiders. It's going to be posted soon, the interview. And he talked about business succession planning, taking over the business, who's going to inherit it, how do you pick the next wave of leaders, how do you make sure, how early, how soon in your business plan do you include succession planning? So I'm glad you touched on that. Bill Newman, it's always I'm going to say it, a thrill ride talking with you. (laughs) It's always exciting to be speaking with you. And thank you, Bill, so much. And let's just wave goodbye to Automotive Insiders audience. If you're just listening to us, we're waving at you. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Shout out to Adam Slayman at OESA for setting this up. Drive carefully. As I like to tell people on my my SAP shows, Bill, my car has been getting two months to the gallon. How's yours doing? But those of us (laughs) who still have keys in our pocket and a gas-powered engine, bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Automotive Insiders, presented by OESA. Listen at your convenience to industry thought leaders as they discuss the ever-evolving industry and how companies can thrive in the new mobility landscape. All episodes are on demand on the Voice America Business Channel and at OESA.org. Automotive Insider is presented by the Original Equipment Suppliers Association.